Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. You don't always have to like him. But you have to respect him. The Roy Green Show continues. The Roy Green Show continues on the Chorus Radio Network. So uh, just in here trying to get this voice to work, and it just won't, you know. It's just one of those things that it's like having a car. You step on the gas. Usually you get a little bit of response, but uh, once in a while it just, call the tow truck. Call the tow truck. Hello, everybody. It's the uh, Roy Green Show. It's the Chorus Radio Network, and it is me, or reasonable facsimile of same. Later in the hour, we're going to be speaking with Sean O'Shea from Global News. Sean was in the courtroom this morning for the uh, jury bringing down the guilty verdict for Dylan Millard and Mark Smitch um, in the murder of Laura Babcock. And uh, we're going to play a little bit uh, of a clip from uh, Laura Babcock's dad. We'll play that back for you in a little while. The families go through hell. They go through absolute hell. And then these arrogant misfits, these thugs who believe when they uh, when they begin their sprees that they will get away with everything because of their innate brilliance find themselves in a courtroom and being held accountable for the huge damage that they've caused but nothing will ever make up for the uh, the horror that they created i just hope that they're gone for good gone for good Dylan Millard and Mark Smith it's been quite a year 2017. It has been quite a year with uh, just looking at global activities and global terrorist activities. You think about Manchester. You think about New York. You think about some of the incidents in uh, Egypt and Pakistan. It has been a rough year. So what are we looking for? What do we should we expect going forward in 2018? I'll tell you one thing that I'm really tired of. I'm tired of the politicians who step up after something that is terrible has happened, and they always mouth the same platitudes. We will not be defeated. The Western world will not lose. We are going to stand together. We'll stand firm. We'll help each other. And on and on they yammer, and they create nothing other than noise, just noise. It takes leadership, and frankly, I'm not seeing it, not from politicians. Where the leadership comes is from the men and the women in our military, and I, uh, I truly, truly respect them. With me is uh, former Lieutenant Colonel Steve Day, the uh, former commanding officer of Joint Task Force 2, the uh, JTF2, the Special Forces Counterterrorism Unit that uh, works both in Canada. They have national obligations and options as well as international. And uh, Colonel Day is now the, uh, he's the founder and president of Reticle, where they offer strategic risk management, training, and innovation services and tailored solutions that discreetly facilitate and enable 
public and private sector clients. Radical, if you've ever looked through the uh, scope of a rifle, you know what a radical is. Colonel Day, it's good to talk to you. Roy, sir, it's, uh, it's always great to be back with you and your listeners and season's greetings. Merry Christmas, and I do wish everybody a, a, a prosperous 2018 going forward. Well, thank you very much, and I hope we have a quiet 2018 going forward, but I, I, hardly, uh, I hardly think so. And I read a piece a couple of days ago where the, uh, the writer, the analyst, suggested that uh, any of the celebrating about the total defeat of ISIS is significantly premature because they may not control territory in the Middle East any longer, or not very much, but they certainly are remain a, a force and remain an attraction for some individuals who feel that they want to fight uh, a, a jihadi fight, and they'll look to ISIS for that. Would you agree? Oh, absolutely. And this, this is the, the challenge of the 21st century is how do you defeat this insidious ideology that wishes to bring chaos and anarchy and destroy a Western liberal dem- democratic way of life that we hold so near and dear? So you're 100% correct, even though, and as we've said for a couple of years now, there was never any doubt that ISIS wasn't going to be able to hold terrain in the Middle East. The question is, now that we've slapped that beehive to the ground, where are all those insects going to crawl away to and fly away to next? So uh, homegrown radicalization is always a problem, but where are those other hardcore fighters um, um, migrating to? The last time we spoke, it was just a couple of days after, the head of Britain's MI5, the Domestic uh, Intelligence Service, warned that Britain is in the most dangerous time in its contemporary history. That is a mouthful from an organization that is essentially known for its silence. And that is a direct, I mean, that's a direct warning to the people of the UK to ex- expect more of what they've already received, is it not? Oh, it, it absolutely is. And uh, I certainly would not discount what the head of MI5 or MI6 or the, the CIA or the Canadian CSIS um, describe as national security threats to, to our way of life. So, Again, the, the difference is the UK, uh, Europe, and the US have different societal makeups than we than we do here at home. But it doesn't necessarily mean those threat vectors or those hazards are any less diminished. Um, what do you think of? What do you make of? And I, this is what I started with. What do you make of the the people who are essentially in charge of our Western democracies? These are individuals who are elected to govern. They start out by uh, being members of a political party, and then whether it's whether it's political gamesmanship, whether it's opportunity, whether it's sensed opportunity, they become the leaders of the party. And then if the party wins an election, maybe because of uh, clever sound bites that have been planted in, in the mouths of the party leaders by ultra-clever public relations people, you have these individuals then running the country. I'm not pointing the finger at anybody. I'm just saying that this, to me, is we, we sometimes, I find we find ourselves with people who are running our democracies who are hardly qualified to do so. Well, uh, Roy, that's certainly a loaded question. I know it and is, and I'm what, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, what I would suggest is that uh, although a lot of the political leaders or even politicians, and this is a generalization, not a an accusation against any one person or group, but although they do come into public service with very limited knowledge, generally speaking, about national security issues, we can take a little bit of heart and solace in the fact that the leaders and the men and women across our national security institutions 
especially in Canada, are tr- are truly world class and some of the best best in the business. Where we where we get into the friction though, is the ability for those men and women to be both empowered and enabled by those political leaders. And this is where the average Canadian can actually help because, uh, as you've alluded to earlier in the in the in the conversation. Because these problems are not necessarily right on our doorstep, we sometimes lose sight of them. And the reality is if we don't take time to prepare before the storm hits, when it hits, we're reacting and we're not ready with all the resources um, that the men and women who are going to step up and assume that risk on our collective behalf um, to to, to defeat those threats. And that's the biggest challenge I, I see, quite frankly, is the politicians are who they are. That's just the model that we live within. But if as a society, we don't demand more, and it's not an, an either-or, like healthcare or defense, or you know whatever that might be, innovation or, or security. We need to change the conversation to an end. How do we have healthcare, leading world-class healthcare, and the right national security umbrella? We, we seem to find ourselves a lot in these either-or conversations. Do you know, I find it uh, really disturbing that in 2017, weeks away from 2018, and this is now 16 years after 9-11, almost 17 years, coming up well, months away from being 17 years. And we're still hearing from political leaders, from people who are in the know. It doesn't matter what party it is because we keep handing off to different players. We don't have the resources. We don't have the manpower or the person power. We, we don't have what we require to, to do the job the way we want to do it. And I say to myself, why not? It's been almost two decades. How can you still trot forward an excuse that we don't have the resources that we require? The resources are out there. Why don't we acquire them? Yeah, and I agree, and I've been, I've been on this uh, perch for a while. The resources are actually out there, and I would argue that if we actually looked inside government, um, some of those resources are just not prioritized. And so even something as simple as the latest report that came out of the UBC professor on the national shipbuilding strategy or the CF-18 Australian fighter replacement program, we come up with absolutely ridiculous solutions to relatively straightforward defense and security problems in this country through no other reason than just political um, you know, meanderings and a lack of strategic coherence about what we need to do in this nation. It is actually very frustrating to a lot of folks to see that we actually then have an idea and then we start messing around with it. And I would use the F-35 CF-18 latest debacle as, as, as a perfect example of why can't we just equip the Royal Canadian Air Force with the best technology that's out there so they can do what we ask those men and women to do on our behalf. Yeah, we weren't asking for the same number of F-35s that the United States uh, military has, but it was a reasonable number, and instead we're going to spend half a billion dollars to buy F-18s from the Australian Air Force, who has no more use for them. It you know, d- absolutely. It's, now, what's it's the like point? When we bought the use, it's like when we bought the used submarines off of the brick. Oh, yeah. We, see, we seem to have this national predisposition to be cheap. When it comes to national security issues, and I, and I believe that is because we are fortunate to be surrounded by three oceans and a superpower to the south. But when, what we, there's no reason, when you look at what Australia spends on defense for a slightly smaller country than Canada, they're spending almost, not exactly, but almost twice the budget on defense. I'm not suggesting we need to double our defense budget. I'm just suggesting we can do better.
Well, I have to think, Colonel Day, that there is an impact on the morale of the men and the women in the Canadian military when the best we can come up with is a, 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 a bunch of discarded aircraft the Australians have no use for anymore, and we're now going to turn them over to our air crews and say, here you go, and in a few years' time, we'll start the bidding process for another plane. But in the meantime, fly these wrecks around. I, okay, maybe I'm, over, I'm, over, I'm overstating maybe, but... No, you are, but I would also suggest there's another thing that is insidious in terms of the attack on the morale of the, the men and women across the Canadian Armed Forces, across the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, across the national security apparatus. But if you go back to the Department of National Defense in particular, in September, the government made an announcement that they were going to start to claw back and cease the special allowances that um, the higher risk people, uh, the higher risk members of the forces receive for, for being in either a high duty or a high risk occupation or a, a high threat environment. And so now you're going you're gonna to create a situation where people are going to say, why am I going the extra mile if you're going to take my money away from me if I get hurt? And oh, by the way, my family has become used to that little bit of extra remuneration because, oh, you, de you determined that I actually deserved it on the front end. So there's a number of policies um, that have come out of late that just don't, there, there's no coherence to them as part, of the, as part of our biggest challenge. We'll come back and talk more about that with uh, Lieutenant Colonel Steve Day, the former commanding officer of Joint Task Force 2. And I can't imagine what uh, the special operators in JTF2 must be feeling when their government says, well, we're just going to cut back on your, on your pay. When we were getting this extra pay for being in dangerous situations, uh, but you're, we're assessing this as not being necessarily as it was, and so therefore we're, we're cutting your pay. This is madness. There's no reason, there's no coherence to the thinking. But who do the politicians take care of? Why, they take care of themselves. Their pension plan is so incredibly generous. They take care of themselves and to Hades with the rest. It's, it's a sad situation. It's a sad situation. We'll come back with uh, Colonel Steve Day. Stay with us. We're back with uh, Lieutenant Colonel Steve Day, retired former commanding officer of Joint Task Force 2. His uh, company is Reticle. Just go to reticle.ca. I like the, um, the opening line, and I'm just going to read this because it speaks to me about what competency is all about and what you want uh, to accomplish. Reticle believes that our proven approach to solving wicked problems cultivated and refined over decades of service in Canada's first-tier special operations unit can help others in navigating today's highly ambiguous, networked, and complex global environment. Radical.ca. Colonel Day, that speaks to what we are facing as a nation, as a world, and we need to understand, the people who operate and who manage our affairs need to understand that. Can we go back to what you were talking about just before the break, and that is what's happening to the special operators. Is It's not danger pay, but it equates to danger pay, does it not? 
Well, yes, it is. what it is is it's not only a special operators, but it, it impacts the special operators directly because they are quite arguably the most deployed folks forward. It is anybody in the Canadian Armed Forces who's got a hazard and danger pay, such as submariners, explosive ordnance disposal technicians, air crew, anybody that's doing something slightly above and beyond gets a, a hazardous or a danger allowance for when they're out there taking on an additional burden or when you're serving in a, a special duty area such as Iraq and, and Syria right now. So when those men and women are out there, they're paid extra to be there because there's a higher level of risk. And what the unfortunate part is, is if they get injured, then it used to be the system would allow them time to uh, heal, and it wouldn't, it wouldn't necessarily be a time-bound uh, decision on when the allowances were ceased. It was a conditions-based. And now we seem to have moved to this arbitrary six-month uh, timeline where if you come off what's known as a temporary category, then if you do not, sorry, if you are placed on a temporary category because you can't do something due to a, an injury or an illness you received, um, if you're not fixed within six months, then you're going to lose that extra money. And in some cases, that could be upwards of five to $6,000 per month, which is a significant hardship on the family. So what happens is people um, will start hiding those injuries. And so this is completely uh, disconnected from a government approach of saying they want to take care of the welfare of our, our soldiers, sailors, airmen, and airwomen. And they'll go back to their units, and they're not fully healed because their families need the money. And so that puts them in greater danger, and it doesn't help the unit any either. It absolutely doesn't. And, and it puts them in greater danger, puts their teammates in greater danger, and quite honestly is probably exacerbating injuries and letting, instead of letting people to get uh, help. And we see this a lot with operational stress injuries. People will hide those injuries because they're afraid of the stigma. But now you're going to say, okay, not only are you afraid of the stigma, you're, we're going to take your money away from you. It just, it, it's not congruent to what we should be doing in, in the 21st century, taking care of those men and women who are walking point for this nation. Yeah. I don't know if you have a little more time left, do you? I, I could, yes, sir. I don't, want you, I don't want to press you on that, but I just have a few more questions, but we have to take a break. Is that okay? Yes, it is. Okay. We're going to take a break, and we'll come back. We'll talk some more with uh, Lieutenant Colonel Steve Day, because this is important. This is really critically important. This is our military. These are men and the women who, who wear uniforms for you and me. How often do we talk about that? We have federal government says it has no social commitment, no social contract with the men and women in uniform. Oh, really? Look at the equipment they give them. Australia's discards are... F- our pilots will be flying that. Back with Colonel Day and uh, a few more minutes. Don't go away. Intelligent Talk Radio. Intelligent Talk Radio. This is the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. I don't think in her family have not gotten the just attention that they are due. And I think that has been very difficult for her family, who have literally had to live in silence for all these years. Well, today, I think for them, they can start the healing process. And that's really what I think um, is the most important thing. There's Alex Pearson uh, on the Roy Green Show earlier today from the uh, verdict. Della Millard and Mark Smith, first-degree murder convictions for both of them. Uh, 
may they rot in hell. And um, we'll talk to Sean O'Shea from Global News shortly. He was in the courtroom today for the uh, for the verdict. We're back with Lieutenant Colonel Steve Day, former commanding officer of Canada's Counterterrorism Unit Joint Task Force Two, one of the world's premier special forces unit. You talk to anybody in the special forces community, they'll tell you the Canadian JTF two in the top three in the world. And yet we treat our military, we, the government treats our military almost as throwaways, junked British submarines that never worked. A Canadian officer was killed in the fire aboard the Shakutami, HMCS Shakutami. A British MP said we should be suing the British government or we should be investigating our people who bought the junk. Um, $500 million paid in fines for canceling the EH-101 helicopter deal. Let's see, $500 million to buy Australia's junked fighter planes and telling our pilots, there you go, there's your new equipment, when the Australians are getting the F-35, I think it is. Lieutenant Colonel Steve Day was the commanding officer of Joint Task Force 2. He joins me on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Colonel Day, what do we need? Uh, what, what, do, what, do we, what do we need? What do we have to do to make our forces confident, um, they are capable, confident and well-equipped. I remember 15 years ago talking to a, a member of the, uh, the the Army who said they were at, uh, I think it was Borden, and they were doing exercises, but they had to jump up with a broom and yell, bang, when they were supposedly firing a shot. I did that when I was five years old, playing with my buddies in the backyard. What do we need? Well, I, I think what we, we need to start with is an actual true national strategy for national security. And that includes both defense, RCMP, CSIS, and the other national security actors that fall within the, those agencies that support us. And it, if we actually had a strategy that was coherent, again, I go back to Australia, a smaller nation than ours, spending more money on their national security. Now, they live in a relatively bad neighborhood when you look at where they are compared to where we are. But they actually have a brilliantly written document that outlays or outlines, sorry, government policy that is bipartisan and says, this is what's in our national interest. This is what we believe as a nation we should be investing in both our men and our women and our equipment to make sure that we safeguard our way of life. So right off the top, we actually need a national security strategy. And lacking that grand strategic document and vision it is then very hard to align all the tribes, if you will, and all the silos within government who start to fight over the little bit of money that's actually made available to them. So this is, this is the first thing. What is our strategy? And then once you have a strategy, you can actually build the plans and the equipment that then supports the strategy. You know, if I asked a politician, a political leader in this country, why we're not doing that, they'd lie to me. And they'd tell me, well, we're, we're going to. We're, don't worry. We're, we're, we're going to. We'll get to it. Just, just don't worry. We have a plan. Uh, I want to ask you to comment on what I just said. Um, so now we have a situation. Let's go back to the beginning of our conversation. ISIS still exists below the surface, still a significant threat below the surface. They are now calling on their so-called lone wolves to, to attack schools, to, to attack kindergarten classes. This is what they're this is what they're broadcasting. This is what they're asking their lone wolves to do. So we in this country now have uh, at least sixty former ISIS terrorists who have returned here, probably more, but at least sixty. Our federal government is doing what? 
oh, we're going to uh, reintegrate them. We're going to provide them with counseling. I think they're going to be reading poetry. I'm not making any of this up, as you know. This is for people who were in tune with and may in fact have done all the things that we saw on television of ISIS do, the, the horrors they committed, at a time when ISIS is saying, we want you who are aligned with us to commit, commit atrocities in Western nations. And we're saying to the ones coming back to Canada, we're going to reintegrate you and counsel you. I, I, I don't know what to say, Colonel. I, I just I don't know what to say. Well, and this is where we, we talk about an incoherence at the national level. And I, I do agree, or sorry, I do believe in the rule of law. And I do believe in all the things that make Canadian society great and just. But I find it utterly incredulous when we are going to, and I don't want to say welcome with open arms, because clearly we're not going to do that. But you're right, we're going to bring these people potentially back home, while at the same, who, who went overseas, to kill our men and women who were deployed overseas, and then we're going to bring them back home, yet at the same time then cut the pay of the very guys they went over to kill. It, does, it just it's, There's an incoherence there that I just don't know anybody could ever explain, and nobody seems to have asked that question, going, how is this possible in the 21st century that we've got government policy so far out of discord with what's going on on the reality for the men and women we send over there to do things. It just, it's, I don't understand it, quite honestly. Yeah, well, that's why government will only do interviews with people who won't ask that question. Um, Possibly. Yeah, I'd love them to come on on this program and, and speak with you. They, when do you say we, 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 uh, we live by laws, Canadian laws, Canadian values? I understand that. And you've said previously you wouldn't want our, our military to be breaking laws and doing what they would have to consider based on their upbringing, based on their understanding of a civilized life. They wouldn't want to do something that they would consider to be immoral. Yet the, the, the British, the Americans, the French, the Australians have given orders to their special operators in the Middle East to kill their citizens who joined ISIS before they can get back to their, their home countries. What do you think of that tactic? Well, again, I, I don't think, uh, quite honestly, that we should be out targeting like, I mean, going out of our way to target our fellow citizens, because I think that is a very, very slippery slope. However, if they are in the battle space, if they are in the theater of operations, and they are a legitimate target, I am very confident that they would be targeted. But if they are not a legitimate target or are not doing something, then it doesn't make a lot of sense to take relatively finite resources and to start to manhunt your own citizens. Because quite honestly... That is more of a law enforcement problem than a special operations problem. The other part of that coin that sometimes gets lost is, I talked about a little bit earlier, is operational stress injuries. If we are going to ask the men and women of this country to go out there and do bad things to bad people, well then, unfortunately, occasionally, there is collateral damage and you have bad things happening to innocent people. And if we don't set up our commanders and our men who are actually pulling those triggers to know that what they are doing is supported by this nation, is supported by the rule of law, we are actually creating operational stress injuries and PTSD because they won't realize, or they may not realize that morally they were correct. It is critical. It is critical that we maintain the moral and ethical high ground so that we do not create a whole bunch of operational stress injuries for people who are doing bad things to bad people. And I'll tell you, 
having done some bad things to bad people and been in the what we would call kill chain, I sleep very peacefully at night knowing that what I did was morally, ethically correct, and that it was supported by this country that sent me over there to do those things. And that's critical. It's absolutely critical for the health and welfare of our, of our soldiers. Do you worry about them? I, I absolutely do worry about what's going on across our first responder community, our national security apparatus, because these men and women who are walking point for this nation, whether that is a firefighter, a paramedic, a police officer, a Canadian Border Services agent, corrections officer, we in this country, because we are, and I'll say it again, because we are cheap, we are putting all the burden down on that frontline professional, and all the risk is assumed by that frontline professional. And you just need to look at the suicide rates amongst our first responders Mm -hmm. to see that we are not resourcing these men and women correctly. We've done some programming on uh, on suicides among first responders, and uh, including military, but police, firefighters, paramedics, and they're scary numbers, and they're growing larger. And we are cheap, and we are not doing what is required. We're not providing the support, the tactical support, the, just every kind of support, moral support. We're not doing what we re- what we what we must, and it's just. It's absolutely abhorrent. Colonel Day, thank you so much for everything you've done for for this country, for Canadians. Uh, You've kept us sleeping comfortably in our beds at night by doing the things that you had to do. And uh, much appreciated and wish you a very Merry Christmas and the very best uh, for 2018. You and the men and the women you serve with. Thank you, Roy. Same to you and yours and and, uh, the wider listeners. And, uh, again, this is a topic that I am passionate about in particular. And thank you for giving me a bit of a, a pulpit to stand on to just uh, to shout to the hills, if you will, on behalf of those men and women. Thank think, you. Have a, have, have a great Christmas season. Thank you. I think they hear you. Thank you. Lieutenant Colonel Steve Day. Radical.ca. R-E-T-I-C-L-E dot C-A. So he had to do the things... that uh, had to do bad things to bad people. And so do the other men and women in the Special Forces units. And our government is saying, well, if you're not well in six months, we're just going to withdraw that that pay from you. We're just going to take it away. How many people could live with less, uh, with five or $6,000 reduced from their income on a monthly basis? These are people who put their lives on the line. Their lives. Meanwhile, we have a... Nah, I won't go there. It would be... Uh, it would be embarrassing. Sean O'Shea from Global News, when we come back, he was in the courtroom this morning for the guilty verdicts for Dallin Millard and Mark Smith. Stay with us. <laughs> 